following message is from North Place Church. For more information about North Place Church, visit northplacechurch.com. I want to make you aware that we began a series of messages that are going to help us approach Easter weekend with a growing sense of momentum. Over the next few weeks, we're going to examine some of the Easter weekend topics of the past decade that have had the deepest impact in the lives of our church family, but also in the lives of the guests that typically join us on Easter weekend. And what's amazing is some of the guests that were here in previous Easter weekends when some of these topics were discussed are now a part of the North Place family, and that will happen again this Easter. Guests will become family. The next three weeks' topics are going to focus on a clear message of the gospel. They're going to focus on the centrality of the cross of Christ. They're going to focus on the overcoming life that is made possible by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And our journey is going to culminate on Easter weekend when we celebrate a message entitled, The Key. It's a message that's going to answer the question, Jesus is risen, so what? It's going to answer the question, what difference did the resurrection make? What difference, what practical difference does an empty tomb make in my life, at work, at home, in school? This year, Easter at North Place is going to focus on answering those practical questions and helping us understand that the resurrection is the key to everything. I fully believe that the resurrection is the hinge of the Bible. It is the hinge of the Christian faith. It is the hinge to an overcoming life. It is the hinge to success at work and education or wherever you may be. But I think we're living with less than what Jesus died for. We're living with less than what he rose from the dead for. And I believe the resurrection is the key to everything when we fully understand it. But today, I want us to focus on a statement made by the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 1. And personally, this has been one of the most life-changing verses in all of the Bible for me. And I'm going to refer why in just a moment. But we're just going to go to Bible class today and we're going to delve into the Word 1 John chapter 1, verse number 8, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sin to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. That's the final words of chapter number 1. Now the first verses of chapter number 2 reveal John's intent for writing the entire letter of 1 John. And he's writing the letter to challenge us to leave our lives of sin behind. He writes, my dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous he himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Now listen, we, we talk a lot about sin, but I'm, let me give you the biblical definition of sin. Sin is to miss the mark. That's the biblical definition of sin, to miss the mark. And that mark is not set by your mom or the church. That mark is not set by media. That mark is not determined by popular vote. God sets the mark. God is the one who differentiates and delineates between what is right 
and what is wrong. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, every one of us has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. None of us, nobody has met the standard. Every one of us has missed the mark. We have all failed. We have all done wrong. We have all sinned. And if you understand the source of the Bible, you understand the creation story, you understand how all of this happened, you know that sin is the source of disease. Not God, sin. Sin is the source of disease. Sin is the source of all kinds of calamity and horrible injustice on the planet. You don't even have to be a Christ follower today to put two and two together to recognize if people would stop doing bad things, we would all be better off. In these five verses, John writes to us, and it seems that he's targeting and trying to address these words to two very specific kinds of people. The first group of people he's writing to are the people who refuse to buy into that I'm a sinner stuff. For one reason or another, they don't really feel like they are all that bad. And the second kind of person that Paul is writing to is the, is the group that's on the opposite end of the spectrum. They feel so bad, so guilty, so full of shame for their past, for their sin, that they can't even look up to heaven. They don't even want to pray. They don't even want to come to church because... That reminds them of the standard that they have failed to live up to. And anything that reminds them of the standard they failed to live up to heaps guilt upon them. They feel so morally inadequate, they don't feel they have a right to approach God. And for simplicity's sake, I'm going to ask you to put yourself into one of these two groups. Because every one of us in this room has a tendency to default to group one or to group two. And I want to say something to both groups, regardless of what group you more closely identify with. I want you to hang with me because when John wrote what he wrote to those two groups, he was headed somewhere with the conversation, and I am today. I, I want you to understand, I, I want to talk to you about the good news that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, but I'm fully aware that before any of us can understand the good in the news of the gospel, we have to understand the bad news of sin. Let me say that again. Before you can ever value and experience the good news of the gospel of grace, you have to understand the bad news of sin. So I want you to hang with me for a moment as we dive headfirst into this. And let me talk first and foremost to group one. Number ones are bothered when they are confronted with any idea or thought that infers wickedness is lurking in the core of their being. Number ones will say something like this when challenged with that idea. You know what? I've tried my best. I'm a good person. I'm not perfect, but I'm definitely not as bad as so-and-so over there. And I wouldn't be intimidated in the least to stand before God. And when John writes, he is writing to the number ones because he is concerned that they don't understand the weight of their sin and the weight of the holiness of God. And when you start understanding the weight of the holiness of God, you will begin to understand the weight of your own sin. And as I watch the, the cultures shift, I really sense there is a growing loss of reverence for God and His holiness in our culture. And so I think more and more of us are becoming number ones. More and more people in our culture are saying, you know what, I don't feel like a rotten sinner. I know some people say the Bible teaches that that's the case. And I know some churches that are conservative still preach that. But that's an outmoded doctrine. That's what they talked about in my grandparents and my great-grandparents' generation. 
educated, cultured, modern people don't believe that anymore. It's too old-fashioned, at least for me, they say, I don't feel that way, I don't see it that way. But the question is, how does God see it? What does the Scripture say? And John writes in 1 John 1, 8, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then in verse 10, he says, If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. John says to the number ones, beware. Okay? To all of us, really, but specifically to the number ones. You're not going to want to admit the sin thing. It's human nature for you to deceive yourself on this. It's natural for you to see evil everywhere but in you. And nowhere in my life have I seen the potential for evil in the human heart any more than in a former acquaintance of mine. Clay and I attended seminary together in Missouri. We were both from Arkansas. We both had battled substance abuse in our past, and we had some meaningful conversations in those classes together. I graduated from seminary, and I lost touch with Clay. And apparently, after seminary, Clay strung together several bad choices. He fell back into the addictions that had plagued his life before coming to seminary. And one night, while stoned out of his mind, he murdered his girlfriend, her cousin, and three children under the age of five years old. There were quotes of shock and disillusionment from Clay's friends and neighbors. They said things like this. He came from a good family. I knew his people. I used to go to church with him. I even heard him preach once. How could he have done that? I just can't believe it. But here's what they meant. He's like me. He's my kind of people. I went to school with him. I went to church with him. He's way too much like me. And I don't believe I could ever be evil enough to do that. The reason they were so shattered and disillusioned is because of bad theology. That they believe that that kind of evil is only lurking in the heart of sick and mentally deranged people. Because we all like to believe there's nothing like Clay Smith in any of us. Charles Spurgeon was a well-respected minister of the late 19th century who used an acorn as an analogy of the potential for evil in the human heart. Inside one single acorn is the potential for a sea of wood. Every single bit of a massive oak tree is scrunched up inside one little acorn. In other words, there's not one thing in that huge tree that is not housed in the substance of that one little acorn. Not only that one tree is in there, but the one tree, there will be thousands of other acorns that will be yielded, that will bring other trees and other acorns. And I think you see where it's headed. One acorn has the potential to cover the globe with trees. But if that acorn falls on pavement instead of fertile soil, within a couple of days, it rots. All of its power goes to nothing. 
It doesn't mean that the power isn't in there. It simply means the power isn't going to be realized. To see the power, to understand the power, the acorn actually has to fall on soil. It has to get watered. The environment and the surroundings have to be perfect just right before the potential that is housed inside that acorn is going to be realized. Ironically, sometime after reading the article about clay, I went to pastor a church in the city where he grew up. I pastored the church he attended growing up. I pastored the church his mother still worshipped in. The church that was only a few miles from where the murders were committed. The church that was only 30 minutes from the death row where Clay was living out his last days. And on May 8th of 2001, almost 15 years ago, Clay was informed one last time by the state of Arkansas of his right to an appeal. And as he did every time previously, he waived again his right to appeal and died by lethal ejection. A few days later, I attended his funeral at the Ralph Robinson Funeral Home there in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. And sitting on the very back row while a mutual friend of Clay and I did the funeral service, I remember sitting there thinking, what's the difference between Clay and me? We have similar backgrounds. We come from similar families. We sat beside each other in the same Bible college classes. He sent me letters from prison. I corresponded with him while he was on death row. His body is in a coffin, a convicted murderer. And I pastor the church where he grew up. Why? How? You could probably give me a lot of logical answers from psychology and the behavioral sciences. You could probably attempt to give me a lot of religious cliches that would try to make sense out of that scenario. But I don't want you to overlook the answer that is contained in that little story about the acorn. The same power and potential for evil that existed in clay exists in me. But by the grace of God, the acorn of evil that is in my heart has fallen on pavement for the most part. The environment wasn't right for all of that evil to flourish as it did in Clay's life. And by the grace of God, that potential in me for evil hasn't been watered to the point that it yields the fruit it did in Clay's life. I'm lying to myself and I'm, I've been handed some bad theology if I don't understand the potential for evil that lurks in every human heart. And because I've come to understand the sin that is a part of my nature and because I understand the potential for evil lurking inside of me, it has made me deeply value the cross of Christ. I understand my sinfulness and I am fully aware of my need for the grace of God. The gospel will never be good news to you until you understand the bad news of your own sin. For the number ones, I really don't have time to convince you today or the ability. So just file away somewhere in your heart and in your head what I've said, what John has written. And somewhere along the way, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be opened and you will have a revelation. You will see your need for a Savior. Now let me talk to the number twos. Those people that are on the opposite side of the spectrum, those of you who don't have to be convinced of your sinfulness because you have an overwhelming sense of it. You are crushed under the weight of it. You can't look God's direction because of your shame. You have this voice in your head that keeps nailing you to the wall. How could you have done that? 
All the sermons you've heard, all the promises you've made, all the things you've said, all that you know, and you did this? How can you go to God? How, how would you walk back in the doors of the church? How can you expect God to listen to your prayer? How could you even think of yourself as a believer? You're not even worthy to approach Him. John has something specific to say to you. 1 John 1.9, but if we confess our sin to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. And then in verse 1 of chapter 2, my dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. Now John says you don't feel worthy. Okay. You're not. None of us are. But here's the good news. You have an advocate, an intercessor, a defender, a champion who goes before the Father on your behalf and pleads your case. But to fully understand this, we need to know what an advocate is. And most of us don't use that word in our everyday language. We definitely don't talk a lot about advocate in church. So what is an advocate? An advocate is someone who has an official relationship with you so that whatever the advocate achieves, you achieve. And whatever the advocate loses, you lose. In ancient times, when you would have two great armies with hundreds, if not thousands of men on each side, sometimes the leaders of those armies would get together and to solve a bloodbath, they would have their greatest warrior from this army battle the greatest warrior from that army, and the winner of the two greatest warriors would determine the fate of the entire nation. There's actually a Greek word for that champion, that national advocate that was sent out, and that Greek word is the archegos. The archegos or the champion would act as a national advocate. And if your champion won, you won. If your champion lost, you lost and suffered because of his defeat. And there's probably no greater illustration of that concept than the biblical story of David and Goliath. Israel reluctantly sent little David as their archegos because no one else would go. And the Philistines proudly sent their warrior champion, Goliath. And each of them served David, the national advocate for the Israelites, and Goliath, the national advocate for the Philistines. And you know the end of the story. Israel reveled in David's victory. The Philistines suffered because of Goliath's defeat. What David won, Israel won. And what Goliath lost, the Philistines lost. Of course, the most common imagery of an advocate in our culture is that of a lawyer especially a lawyer that has what we know as the power of attorney. And in that case, the lawyer stands and represents the client so that what the lawyer achieves, the client achieves. And what the lawyer loses in court, the client loses. Hundreds of years ago, there was a Presbyterian theologian named Charles Hodge that addressed this issue. And listen to what he wrote. The relationship of Christ to his people is that of a legal advocate to a client. The former personates the latter. The lawyer stands in the client's place. It is, while it lasts, the most intimate of relationships. You may not even have to appear in court. You are not heard. You are not regarded. You are lost in your advocate, who for the time being is your representative. The advocate, not you, is seen. The advocate, not you, is heard. The advocate, not you, is regarded. 
Another question that I have today is Jesus, if he's my advocate before the Father, if he's my champion, my archegos, my representation before God, what is he doing up there on my behalf? I know John says that he is pleading my case before the Father, but what does that mean? These verses are the verse, verses of Scripture I ever memorized as a kid, and they're very personal to me, literally. The first one I ever put to memory I can tell you where I was standing on the carpet of a small church in Alma, Arkansas at a vacation Bible school that was being led by two uh, adults, Ma and Paul King, a children's evangelists. They dressed in overalls and wore straw hats and engaged children. And those of you that have been a part of VBS, as you know, you bring a guest, the boys get a little more weight in their bucket if you bring an offering. And then there's this competition. And we had been given a memory verse for the week. And every guy that got up and said it, it was another weight dropped in the boys' bucket. And it was a close race. And so I pushed past my fear, committed it to memory. And on Friday, the last night, I stood up in front of everybody and said, 1 John 1 and 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I committed that to memory. I knew what came before it. I knew what came after it. And when I read that Jesus is my advocate and pleading my case before the Father, I had this childlike, silly courtroom scene that played over and over in my mind. Because in my head at that time, God the Father was playing the role of a mean judge and Jesus was acting as my attorney, always begging the judge to let me off when I blew it. And it wasn't just silly, it was nerve-wracking because this is the conversation I would imagine playing out in my head. Jesus would say, Father, please don't wipe him out. I know he blew it again, but for my sake, please don't wipe him out. And then I would imagine the Father responding, I can't believe he did it again. And Jesus would say, I know, but please, for my, my sake, give him one more chance. And the reason that's nerve-wracking for me is because I wondered when that conversation would happen over all the miserable times of failure and sin in my life, and Jesus would, would, would plead for my behalf, and the Father would say, you know what, that's it. It's over. I mean, I've, I've done it over and over and over again. You've asked again and again and again. He's crossed the line. He knows better. That's it. He's had it. No more. And I let that silly, nerve-wracking drama play out in my head every time I failed because I didn't understand what it meant for Jesus to be my advocate. You see, the Bible doesn't say that he is your advocate, Jesus Christ the merciful. It doesn't say he is Jesus Christ the persuasive. It says that he is Jesus Christ the righteous one. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. I want you to listen closely to me for a moment, and, and what I would say, lean in a little bit, because for those of you, there's freedom in what I'm about to tell you. For those of you that have grown up in church your whole life, and for those of you that are searching for a relationship with God, there is freedom in what I'm about to tell you. Engage. A really good lawyer doesn't just play on the emotions of the court. A good lawyer has a good case. And when Jesus stands before God as your advocate, he has a case, and that case is the cross. A penalty had to be paid for sin. That's the law of God. You have a holy God and a sinful human race, and the only way that a holy God can be in relationship with a sinful human race is for somebody to pay the price to build a bridge so that we could be covered and be in relationship with Him. Jesus was willing to pay that price. He was willing to build that bridge, and that bridge is in the shape of a cross. When you miss the mark, and we all have, a price has to be paid. 
And what's absolutely startling about this passage is that John is pleading, Jesus is pleading our case. But John says he's not up there begging for mercy on our behalf. He's not even up there begging for forgiveness on our behalf. Jesus is reminding the Father what the law says. Listen, he doesn't have to persuade the Father of anything. The whole idea of Jesus being our Savior and building a bridge through the cross and the resurrection to provide hope for humanity, that was the Father's idea. He is not the mean judge in the silly courtroom scene of my childhood imagination. When Jesus stands before the Father as my advocate, he relentlessly and continually says something like this. Father, yes, Brian did do it again, but I've died the death he should have died. And I've lived the life he should have lived in his place. I am his advocate. He is lost in me. When you look at him, you have to see me. You have to see all that I've done. You have to see all that I am. And therefore, Father, it would be unjust according to your own law to make two payments for his sin. I have already paid for it. Therefore, Father, I I do not simply ask for mercy, but based on the law, I demand justice. First John, amen. That's That's worth praising God for. 1 John 1, 9 doesn't say if we confess our sins, He is faithful and merciful to forgive our sins. It doesn't say that He is faithful and loving. He is, of course, both faithful and loving, and He is faithful and merciful. But He doesn't forgive our sins simply because He's merciful. He doesn't forgive our sins simply because He is loving. God forgives our sin because He is just. You have to get this. Listen, justice has to be stronger than mercy. In our culture, we would never allow a father or a mother to preside as a judge over the court case of their own child. Why? Because justice has to be stronger than mercy. If justice is not stronger than mercy, there will be no civil order in that culture. And here's the good news. Amazingly, in our situation, we have an advocate where we have the justice of God and the love of God that demand that he accept us. This is far more than forgiveness. And people don't get this. They think Jesus just died so they could be forgiven. If it was only about forgiveness, then he would have wiped our past slate clean and he would have put us on probation until we blew it again. But Jesus has done more than put you on probation. He has gone through probation for you and he has put you beyond probation as a son and daughter of the king. He's not just your savior, he's your advocate. He doesn't just forgive you, he made you righteous. You are lost in your advocate, you are lost in his righteousness. He stands before God on your behalf, he goes into battle in your place, he is your archegos, he is your champion. The writer of Hebrews says this, and let us run the race With endurance, the race God has set before us, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Some of you may not recognize that verse because you grew up hearing it like this. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The New King James uses the word author. The New Living Translation uses the word champion. Do you know what the word is in the Greek? Archagos. 
He is the one that goes out ahead of you into battle. And what he wins, you win. What he loses, you lose. But the key is, he doesn't lose. He is your advocate. You are lost in him. He, what he has accomplished, righteousness, we have accomplished. What he has won, right standing before God, we win. Through no effort of our own, simply by surrendering our lives and being lost in our advocate. So how does that change your life? What difference does it make? Finally, those of you that are number twos, you can deal with your guilt. Finally, you can rest in the grace of God. Finally, you can understand that God doesn't forgive you because you were able to meet the standard, but he gave Jesus to you as your advocate to raise you to the standard. You are lost in your advocate. He is righteous, and in him I am made righteous, and that's what makes the news good news. The reason some people can't deal with their guilt is because they believe that God is only merciful, and he is merciful. It was his mercy that brought forth the entire idea of Jesus dying on the cross in your place. But you have to understand the cross is not simply a picture of mercy. The cross is a picture of justice. The righteous requirements of the law were met in Christ on the cross so you and I could have a right standing before God. And when you understand this, Jesus is your advocate. You're beginning to grasp the gospel and you will never Read Romans 8 the same way. Listen to this as we close this morning. Romans 8, verse 1. Listen, in light of what we talked about, listen. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sin lurking inside us. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinner have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving us his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us. That's good news today. Especially if you have a background like I do. You were a thief and a cheat and a liar and a drunk. You deal with guilt. You go back home like I did last week to preach a funeral. And their friends standing in the line to watch your 39-year-old cousin pay the last respects. Guys that we ran with in high school. Some of them still dealing with substance abuse and to know that I handed them their first bottle. And they're still trapped. And I'm free. Guilt because of your past. You deal with it. You have to come to a point in life where you learn to rest in your advocate. You learn the good news is good news not just because it's a phrase but because he's a loving God, a merciful God, but he's also a just God. And for the number ones who are blinded to your own sin, 
you will never see the good in the news until there's a revelation that opens your eyes to your need. For the number twos, those that carry the weight of their guilt, there is no better news in all the world. You can be free. Those of us that have trusted our lives to the grace of God need to be reminded this morning of this simple gospel presentation and learn to walk in the freedom that is made available to us. I'm going to pray a prayer, a prayer to an advocate, the advocate, Jesus. And very similar, different words, but very similar in principle to what I prayed the day I came to Jesus almost 25 years ago. I didn't know how to say the words, but my heart reached out and grabbed a hold of the words the pastor prayed. And I said, Lord, that's what I would say if I knew how. That I mean that. Yes, I mean that. I'm going to pray that in just a moment. And there may be some of you that are away from God. You need to come home. There may be others of you that have never met him your life, you're you're considered a seeker, you're searching, maybe today the eyes of your heart's opened and you want Jesus to be your advocate, you want to be lost in him, you want him to plead your case before the Father and the way you become righteous is to trust in him and he covers you, he clothes you with his righteousness. I ask um, Pastor Bear to just sing one phrase. He's going to sing more of the hymn in the prayer time, but there's an old hymn called Before the Throne. The lines of that song written hundreds of years ago affirm the presentation of the gospel that I, I mean, it just kind of, it's in line with what we've shared today. And I would love for you to just reflect for a moment in what's been said. Let the Holy Spirit deal with your heart. And for those of you we're sitting here today trying to determine whose names go on this list. Who did you sit there and think, oh, I wish they could have heard this. I wish they could have heard this. They're drowning in their guilt. I wish they could have heard the hope of the gospel. I would love for you to, in the next few moments, let the Holy Spirit speak to you. I'm going to come back and pray in just a moment, but for the next 30 seconds or so, would you, what is your response going to be? And whose name is God speaking to your heart today so that we can join you in praying for them? Pastor Bear, just sing that one verse for now. Listen to these words. And I bow before the cross of Christ and marvel at His love divine. God's perfect Son was crucified to make me righteous in God's eyes. This river's depths I cannot know, but I can glory in His blood. The Lord Most High has bowed down low. Lord, on me is glorious love. I'm going to pray a prayer to Jesus today. I request that he become our advocate. And I really encourage you. This is a spiritual awakening for somebody in this room today. Whether you're watching online, live, or you're sitting here. 
And I just, I want to pray it. And, I, and if you're hard, if you're saying, yes, that's me, I, I need to, I need him. I want him. I, I, I want right standing before God. Then let these words, let your faith grasp these words and make them yours. Jesus, I need you. And I want you to be my advocate before the Father. I confess my sin because I believe you are faithful and just to forgive them. I recognize the evil in my heart, but I also recognize that you are my defense. In you, I am made righteous. In you, I have right standing before God. Today, I surrender. I want my life to be lost in yours. Today, I confess you as the Lord of my life. When others accuse me, you accept me. Today, I am yours. I'm going to ask you if you would to stand with me all over this place, please. And prayer team, would you make yourself available? If you need to talk to someone today about your relationship with Jesus, maybe you prayed that prayer this morning, and I would encourage you, if you affirmed that for the first time in your life, that Jesus be your advocate, your Savior, your Lord, then I strongly encourage you to let one of these prayer partners know that today. If you need to come back home, I strongly encourage you to let one of these people pray with you. But for those of you that are strong, devoted, mature believers, Jesus isn't just your advocate in the area of sin. He is your advocate in the area of sickness. He is the advocate in the area of relational strife. He is the advocate in the area of need where you need provision for finances. And let us pray with you for the miraculous so that your advocate can plead your case before the Father today. I encourage you, if you would help us, Thursday morning we're going to begin a long series of praying one by one over the names you place on this list. Keep the small portion for you. The big one put in the baskets. There are two here. There are two in the rear of the building on your way out. Father, would you bless them and keep them? Would you make your face shine down upon them? Would you be gracious to them? Would you turn your countenance their direction, Lord? And would you help us understand what it means to find peace? Give us peace. Peace with God that can only be known when you are our advocate today. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message from North Place Church. Feel free to duplicate or to share this message. For more information about North Place Church, visit northplacechurch.com.